Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world The changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case. During my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, today is December the 18th, 2009. It is a Friday. We're approaching Christmas terminal velocity for men who have not bought their wives Christmas presents. Shame on you. And in my arrogance, I was done on the 11th. <laughs> Oh, just a little poking fun at you guys to remind you, because I know some of you are putting it off. And uh, Friday, it's going to be pretty crazy at the mall today, but not as crazy as it'll be Monday, guys. So if uh, you need to go somewhere, go do it. Uh, That really has nothing to do with today's show, though. Today, um, it's cold outside. Even in North Texas, it's cold. It was below freezing again last night here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Below freezing in the first half of December is not really normal. Not for it to consistently go below freezing. And uh, it's happening this year. I guess the global warming in reverse is true, huh? Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about something that's really going to move us mentally into spring. At least for most people. Some people can start doing a lot of this stuff now if you're far enough south. But... I think for most people, this is going to move you into spring. We're going to talk about permaculture again today. I'm going to go through with you, um, as I've done in the past, today, the, the seven layers of a permaculture system and the five zones of running a permaculture system. And then I have for you about seven things that I've learned from Jeff Lawton and Bill Mollison in studying their work that are paradigm shifts in the way that I used to think about growing things. <clears throat> So that's what today's show is going to be about. I also have one really cool announcement. Um, but before that, let's make it knock out our housekeeping. Number one, take care of our sponsors. They take care of you by making sure the show's here. Sponsor of the day, number one, Tactical Response Gear, James Jager's Operation. Um, t- check out their site. It, it really is an amazing site with an amazing variety of, uh, of things that are available on it. Uh, really cool stuff. It, 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 the one guy on the forum said it's like it's like a, a crack dealer for an addict to be on tactical response if you're tactically minded. So check out their gear, check out their stuff, and check out their DVD training and consider taking some of their you know on-site training uh, at tacticalresponse.com as well. Sponsor of the day number two today, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, check them out. They have everything you need as a prepper. Really cool stuff. Um, I'm about to pick up from them a cool little vacuum sealer that doesn't require special bags. It'll vacuum seal just about any bag. And it's only a hundred and some odd bucks, and I think it's going to be a great little addition uh, to our storage routines. And they just have a tremendous assortment of really unique, top-quality things. Remember, they also have a tremendous assortment of storable foods, mountain house, providing pantry, yoders, you name it. Additionally, they have a discount membership, $29 uh, one time, and you get big discounts for every purchase for the rest of your life from Safe Castle Royal. You want to get that for free, I'll tell you how to do it in a second. Next, check out our gear shop, T-shirts and stuff like that. If you guys want to, you know, if a fellow TSP are in the home, you want to give away something for Christmas, you better get on that one quick. I don't know if they can get it to you in time anymore. Uh, but check out our gear shop. The shirts are just awesome. Um, check out our YouTube channel. Become a subscriber. Please do that. I have some really cool stuff coming to you guys in January. Uh, I'm finally going to be free of a lot of the responsibilities that I've had to kind of lead this double life with. And I'm going to be putting a lot of effort into stuff that's going on 
on YouTube. So become a subscriber so you know about it when it happens. Uh, and last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, I'll leave it at that today because I want to get into today's main topic. And... Um, I want to tell you first, uh, let me, I said I would tell you how you get a free Safe Castle discount membership. You join the MSB, uh, which is the Member Support Brigade. Support the show at $5 a month or $50 a year. You get a whole bunch of free stuff, including that lifetime membership to Safe Castle for free. Um, on that note, kind of moving into some another one of our sponsors. It's not a sponsor of the day, but I wanted to let you know about something. The member support brigade people were told about this last week, and they had first chance to register and make sure that any uh, MSB member got a chance to register for uh, a seat at one of these three events. Now I'm telling everybody on the air. And uh, there's only 25 seats available to each event, and you can go to one or you can book all three. But it's really going to affect people that are in the Texas area. Um, uh, Backyard Food Production is running a three-part series of workshops on primitive hunting and trapping skills. They brought in an expert who's going to do day-long courses. They're all on Saturdays. It's going to be January 23rd, February 27th, and March 27th. Those three, I've committed to being at at least two of them. I will be at the January and the February one. I will most likely be at the March one, but given that we'll be having the house up for sale and things like that at that point, I can't guarantee you that I'll be at the March one, but I will be at the first two absolutely guaranteed. You might as well book all three if you're in the area and you can come. Uh, you can find out more information at BackyardFoodProduction.com, click on workshops, and you can see that. So uh, those three dates again, January 23rd, February 27th, and March 27th, come down, learn primitive uh, trapping and hunting skills from an expert, and meet me, and uh, we'll hang out together for a day. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic today, which which is permaculture. What is permaculture? I think that's like the first thing that we really have to talk about. And we can give you kind of the the textbook definition that the people that created it have. And then we kind of like, let's take that down a layer to what it really means to you and I. Permaculture is the, the, the combining of two words, permanent and agriculture. And it's more than permanent agriculture. It's more about permanent culture. It's a way of living that's sustainable. And that it revolves around care of the earth, uh, care of uh, of people, and care of the environment. Right? It, it's it's about making sure that everything that's part of the system is cared for, and that everything within the system that can go back in ends up going back in in a circle. Right, and a pattern, and everything in permaculture is really about patterns. We'll we'll discuss some of those patterns today. They may not be a lot of the patterns that you traditionally think of, because they're the difference is we as humans we tend to create patterns around a concept of tidiness, which I'll, I'll kind of finish up with why that's wrong uh, at the end of today's show, but. When I talk about patterns in permaculture, I'm talking about natural patterns that exist all around you. If you happen to listen to the show while you're driving right now, uh, if you don't look at the highway, if you look past the buildings, if you look into nature, you'll see countless patterns. Uh, the way the trees shift at their edges down to fields is a pattern. 
the way that uh, a forest canopy forms itself as a pattern. And from the, 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 the huge look way back at, a, at thousands of acres of forest down to a single leaf, nature has patterns. And when we talk about permaculture, we're talking about emulating those patterns because they're proven patterns. They work because they are part of the natural state of things. Now let, let's for a second talk about what permaculture is not. Permaculture is not regulated to a bunch of vegetarian hippies um, running around beating on peace stick drums and, and smoking grass. Like I think some people that have never studied it have. And if you're that person, I don't, I don't hold anything against you. You smoke all the grass you want, just, just please don't drive a car in front of me when you're doing it and, you know, go on about your way. I'm not putting that down. I just want to make sure that people understand that permaculture is not about that granola-chewing hippie mentality in and of itself. It, 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 sure, there's people from that world that, that take part in that activity, right, and, and, and enjoy that activity, but that same person probably walks on a sidewalk. And that doesn't mean you don't walk on a sidewalk, too. If I can, if I try to bring that together for you. It's not all about people that are true believers in global warming. I make my little side remarks all the time because I think man-made global warming is a farce. But I'm still a permaculturist. Permaculture is about being a human being and understanding your place and your state in the, in the, in the world and in the universe is a human being. And the most devout permaculturists are you know, not just vegetarians, they're omnivores, they eat meat as well. They see livestock as part of the process. Now, some of them are vegetarians. So you look at the Nerveuses, and they're kind of a mixture of permaculture and French biointensive gardening is what they do. And they have livestock as part of their system, but they've chosen to be vegetarians. But they're a perfect example of what I like to hold up as a great vegetarian. They're not in your face about it. They're like, okay, we chose this, and that's it. That's all you hear about it from them. And that's that's good because it doesn't push people away. I don't ever want people pushed away from gardening, permaculture, things like that. I've talked about this. I've had people make snide remarks to me. Are you going to teach us to make a pie next? Right? It's supposed to be survival. It's supposed to be tough. Well, there's nothing more tough than going hungry. And there's nothing more likely to create crisis in the world than hunger. Permaculture is more than permanent culture or permanent agriculture. It is a solution to hunger around the world, not just in your backyard. It just starts in your backyard. So that that's what permaculture is. Why should we do it? Well, I mean, if solution to hunger is not big enough, we should... That should be enough, right? If we have a solution to hunger, then maybe all of us should get involved and understand and be a part of this thing. But if that's not enough for you, it's a solution to your hunger. Even with a small yard, if you practice good permaculture techniques, especially if you can expand it out at the community level and get maybe a few neighbors participating as well, if you can end up with a community plot, if you can do some things like that, it's a solution to your hunger. You'll never not have something to eat. It will extend your storage capacity. Another reason we should do it is it's a hell of a lot easier than running a typical garden. Because once you get it running, it takes care of itself by and large. It doesn't need the amount of support that we typically think of with agriculture. There's a lot of reasons that we should do permaculture. But I think the biggest one is because it will help us heal the damage that's been done to our planet. So those of you that when I, I'm a Nazi global warming desi- uh, denier, as I was told in an email this morning, um, 
think that I don't care about the planet. Of course I care about the planet. I live here too, just like you. And we've done a massive amount of damage to the planet. We have places in our southwestern United States here that we look at and go, oh, that's desert. And we believe it was always desert, and it wasn't always desert. A lot of that desert that's on the edge of the true desert was turned into desert. It was created into desert by growing cotton uh, around the time of World War One. And there's actually places out there where, while I'm not a big fan of FDR's social programs, that he sent the Civilian Conservation Corps to put um, ditches on contour throughout some of these areas, and they've healed remarkably well. And there's these little oases in the middle of the deserts, but they're not the typical oasis. They get all of their rainfall, or all the water from the rainfall that's there, they've just reshaped the land so that it doesn't run off anymore. But there's so many places like that. The number one thing that we produce with agriculture in the world today is desert. Permaculture stops that process. It allows us to take land, and instead of making it harder and harder to yield a crop from every year, it makes it easier and easier to yield a crop from every year. If you go out in the middle of the forest and you cut a clearing and you plant crops, the first year they grow fabulously. And then as you do it over time, eventually you have to start pouring fertilizer on the soil because the topsoil that took years and, 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 and sometimes tens of thousands of years to form is lost to erosion. Permaculture is about taking the process that made that topsoil and working with it instead of against it. Instead of slashing and burning the forest, you're cultivating a forest, and the forest is what feeds you. And we do that through a process called a layer system. And all it is is Bill Mollison looked at the, the layers of the forest canopy coming down to field edges and saw all the major layers there and said... If we emulate those layers in a field, we'll put in a forest. Where there was a field, now there'll be a forest. If there's a forest, we'll have leaf drop. If we have leaf drop, we have natural composting, and we have natural soil building instead of unnatural soil erosion. Now, if we're building the forest ourselves, then instead of having um, a forest that may have some things that are useful to us, we can purposefully build a forest of trees and plants that that all either directly benefit us, directly benefit our livestock, or do, or we have plants that don't directly benefit us, but they directly benefit the other plants that are beneficial to us. So we might be planting a tree that's not producing anything edible, but it might be a nitrogen fixer that benefits the apple tree that it's planted next to. All right, so it's about everything being constructed by the hands of man in an emulation of nature. So the first thing we have to do, if we're going to do that, is we have to understand the beauty and the genius of nature's natural pattern. So when that process was being reverse engineered by Bill Molson, he came up with seven primary layers. And there's actually more that I've heard him lecture about, but the seven primary ones are the ones that we have to get right if we're going to build a permaculture system in a backyard or a city park or honestly anywhere in the world. And the first one should come as no surprise to anybody, and it's the one that we've done the most to destroy because we don't understand its importance, is the canopy layer, the high tree layer. When you're standing in older woods, ancient woods with less growth inside them. And you can see wide and far, but when you look up, you can't see the sky. That's a canopy. That's a forest canopy. 
And that canopy layer is so important because it is the soil builder. It is constantly dropping leaves. In environments where we have deciduous forests, like the United States temperate forests, there's a tremendous amount of those trees that every year, when winter comes, the leaves turn beautiful colors. We look at them, we go, ooh, ah, then they turn brown and fall to the ground. And that happens every year. And there's tons and tons of leaves that fall. Tons. You know, you rake your backyard, you rake your front yard, you throw those leaves away, and you end up with a few bags and they just don't seem that heavy. And you don't get how a forest, how much weight there is in those leaves, how much biomass goes to the ground, how much of it gets walked into the ground by the forest creatures, how much of it gets torn up, deer, wild hogs and things like that, squirrels that come through and dig the acorns out of the leaf litter and dig the leaves into the ground. This happens naturally, and it produces the most fertile soil known to human beings. We've never found any soil that's more fertile than the soil created by a forest canopy layer with long-term dropping. That's why we destroy forests. That's why we do it in the first place, because we know if we go cut 40 acres out of a forest, it's going to be hard work, but when we're done, the earth that's beneath that will produce for us. But when we understand using the layers instead of destroying them, we don't have to take it away. We can use it, and we can let the system continue to produce for us. And we can create new canopies with trees that grow the things that we want in them. The next layer is the low tree layer. You go into any forest, and you'll find trees that are not even young trees, but they're adult trees that don't grow as tall as the canopy trees. They're shade-tolerant trees. You generally won't find them in the center of the forest. You'll find them closer to the edges. But there'll be trees that grow lower. Maybe if your canopy lever layer averages 40, 50, 60 feet, your low tree layer will be trees that average in the neighborhood of 10 to 20 feet. And they'll be shade-tolerant varieties. These trees are important because they begin, in many instances, the transition to the edge. And the edge is where life is. If you're a hunter and you want to hunt deer and you have a place that's open fields and then another part of that same piece of property is dense, thick forests, the place that you'll have the most success in your hunting will be the transitional point between the forest and the field. Due to that, it's important in our permaculture systems to create many edges. And we do that by putting in dwarfing trees, smaller trees, trees that are natural subcanopy trees. In America, that would be something like pawpaw. Pawpaw are a natural shade-grown uh, tree that grows at that subcanopy layer. Or we might go in and we may put in fruit trees, which would be apples, pears, pomegranates, name it, on, on dwarfing rootstock. Persimmons would be another good tree to grow as a secondary layer. Things that we eat normally and things that maybe you know, most people know what an apple is. A lot of people have no idea what a persimmon is. They're an amazing fruit. Uh, Marjorie down at Backyard Food Production sent me a box of them. I'm about halfway through them now. And, and you know, I'm in the middle of winter now, and I'm eating fresh fruit because the persimmon is different than your typical fruits that would be long gone or would have had to been stored in cold storage or something like that by now. 
that's understanding that subtree layer. And that tree layer does begin that transition uh, to the edge. We call that the low tree layer is, is the way that it's uh, technically termed. From the low tree layer, we move to something that will be a natural progression and easy to understand. Go to that field where it joins the forest, and as you see the low tree layer coming to the field, the next thing that you see are bushes and shrubs. And that's the next layer is the shrub layer. So for us, when we're creating our own emulation of this, this is where we come in with all those wonderful berry plants. And maybe even we put in, mixed in with our shrub layer, very short-growing trees like figs. So we come in there with raspberries and blackberries and blueberries and anything that grows on a hedge or a shrub, gooseberries, service berries, saskatoons, wolfberries. These are all, wolfberries are also known as goji, by the way. If you know anybody in a network marketing scam selling like super juice, they might have goji berries in it. Well, there's a lot of medicinal qualities to those. Goji berries are a great thing to grow. They'll grow just about anywhere in the United States. So then we have that shrub layer, and that provides an immense amount of food. Sometimes it provides more food than the canopy and the subcanopy layer, because we have a big piece of property we're working with, let's say 40 acres. The majority of your trees are not going to produce fruit and nuts. You're going to have a mixture in there. But with that shrub layer, man, you can go to town with it. And you start to create things that come in. So your berries are coming in in, in late spring, early summer into late fall. Then your your fruit trees are coming in in the fall. And then your nut trees are coming in late fall through to winter. You're creating a system that's much better than just a garden. Because it's producing for you throughout a large portion of the year. There's something being produced by your system for consumption. We move on from the shrub, we go to the herbaceous layer. And that's as you get at the edge of your field, and hopefully it's not a field that's been you know, plowed under. And you'll see all different varieties of weeds growing. That's what we'll call them as weeds, because we don't understand what they are. And in many cases, they're medicinal plants, they're edible plants. A lot of times we look at those weeds, and you know we're looking at lamb's quarters, one of nature's wonder plants for green and grain production, or different types of amaranth that the, the Native American people cultivated and lived on, and we see it as, as a weed today. And that's also in that herbaceous layer, if you're going to grow a typical kitchen garden, kind of through that herbaceous layer is where you'll grow your tomatoes, your peppers, your eggplants, your onions, your, your, your carrots, all the things that are in a typical garden. But if we move into that herbaceous layer and we start talking about things like onions and carrots, we cross. We cross what I call a hybrid layer. Bill doesn't call it that. I call it that. Um, and he might think I'm wrong. I don't know. If he says I'm wrong, I'm probably wrong. He knows more than me invented it. But to me, when I look at a carrot, when I look at a potato, when I look at an onion, I see a hybrid. Because the next layer in the system is the rhizomal layer. The rhizomal layer means the root layer. Anything that grows a root that can be used by humans or by its, by their livestock. So a potato, we dig it up and we eat the root. A carrot, we pull it from the ground, we eat the root. An onion, we pull it from the ground and we eat the root. But to me, it's still an herbaceous layer, too. There's still a portion of the plant that's above ground, and that's occupying the herbaceous space. So we have those two layers always work in conjunction. There is no such thing as a rhizomal plant that doesn't also have an above-ground portion of it growing as well. From there we move to the cover crops. These are the ground covers that form natural mulches when you get out into the herbaceous layer, the shrub layer. 
uh, the, the, the garden uh, area. When you have ground cover, it, it occupies space outside of that tree canopy layer where the leaves don't naturally fall to act as mulch. Now we put a living mulch on the ground. This could be things like strawberries, cranberries, and anything that runs along the ground that provides something useful either in the form of direct food or in the form of nitrification. It might even be a temporary plant for a part of the year that's then replaced with something else in a different part of the year. In other words, I may grow vetch. And I may grow vetch as a cover crop. And toward the end of its life cycle, I may cut it and I may feed it to my livestock. And leave its roots in the ground, which will then drop the nitrogen nodules that it's produced. I may grow clover the same way. I may grow field peas the same way. And grow them as a cover crop in and around other crops to provide nitrogen and take them away at some point. Or I may grow a permanent cover crop like running strawberries that not only act as a cover crop, but then I can go out in my backyard and pick strawberries during the times of the year when they're available. You see how all of this fits together. And then there's one more. One more major layer, the vertical layer. This is the climbing vines. And this is where we bring in a tremendous amount of food production that can utilize a lot of the other things as support. So maybe in our sub-tree layer, if we have it on the sunny side of our edge, where it gets a lot of sun, we go out and underneath that dwarfing uh, tree, we plant a whole bunch of scarlet runner beans that need some sunlight, but do well with a little tiny bit of shade so they don't get scorched, especially in warmer climates. So we take that dwarf peach tree and around it we plant 20 or 20 or so scarlet runner beans which then climb up that tree and occupy the climbing space we pick the beans and before the plant has really come to fruition and there's still some life left in it we go ahead and we kill it so that the roots are at the height of their production of nitrogen nodules and when we cut that vine from the ground at ground level all those little nitrogen nodules fall off into the, of the root system that won't support them anymore into the soil and they end up being taken up by the dwarfing tree. So that's one way to use vining crops. That's a temporary vining crop. And then we have things like passion flowers. And most people go, I can't grow passion flowers. I'm too far north. Check out something called maypop. Maypop is a, a passion flower that grows every year, freezes to the ground, and grows back, and will grow into most of our northern climates and come back every year. So there's another we, we would call temporary in that it will go away. Its vines will disappear, but permanent as it will reoccur. And then we move into things that are truly permanent vining crops. Things like grapes. Uh, grapes you can grow either on a trellis or you can grow onto natural structures. Uh, and these... The vines provide a tremendous amount of additional food and a tremendous extension of the growing season, or I would say more of a diversity of the growing season. You can go in and plant two or three different varieties of grapes. You can have an early, a mid, and a late yielding, and you can have grapes from late spring into early fall. Fresh grapes that you can use for direct eating, making jellies, jams, wines, you name it. And that can be part of this permaculture system. Another great vining crop to put into this system are kiwis and arctic kiwis. We think of kiwis as being a tropical fruit. There's kiwi varieties you can grow up into the most northern regions of the United States. There's an arctic kiwi that's from Siberia. If it'll grow in Siberia, it'll probably grow where you are. And they will produce up to 100 pounds of fruit per vine. 
They're not the furry little ones you get at the grocery store. They're kind of a smooth skin. You eat them like a grape. They're about as big as a giant grape. They're a lot smaller than those furry ones. They taste just like them, though, which is pretty nice taste as far as I'm concerned. I like kiwis. But one vine can produce a 100 of them, and if you pick them early and refrigerate them, they stay hard, take them out as they're needed, and they soften up or bled, um, is what it's called, on your countertop. So now you've seen what this, this structure that's natural in nature, anywhere you go, when you go look at, at woodlands, you will see a canopy, a subcanopy, a shrub layer along the edge, a herbaceous layer that it tapers off into. You, if you look hard enough, you'll find cover crops. You'll find crops that are growing beneath the ground producing rhizomes, and you'll find climbers. And by re- reproducing that, you can do so much more than just a garden. You can provide so much food for yourself in such a small area. And imagine if we started building communities with this concept in mind. And there's communities they've done this already. I know people are going to email me. Did you see this? Did you see that? I've seen plenty of communities. It's awesome. But what if we just decided we were going to start doing that? When we start doing new housing developments, we're going to put areas in between them, break zones that are planted with, with canopy-layered trees, pushing edges out, and there was community food just available for everybody to walk around to pick. Think it can't happen. It already has. There's communities like that. Here's the interesting thing. Right across the street from one of these communities is a great big beautiful piece of property. And it has all these typical suburban American homes. Clean driveways, manicured lawns, very few trees. You know, one tree in each guy's yard, pruned a certain way, everything sterile. The typical American uh, suburban home. Big, beautiful homes, though. At the time, the guy that was building this planned community, this permaculture community, sold the houses. They sold for about 30% more than the houses over in this other manicured area. Now the people that bought those houses have houses that are worth as much as three times as much as the houses across the street because of what's built up over time, because they saw what it could become. So these things always cost more at first, but one of the things that really got me with Bill Mollison is, again, he wasn't a granola-eating hippie. There's a guy that grew up in Tasmania shooting uh, game on, on the mountainsides in the wintertime because that's what there was to eat in the wintertime. He said you had to be a carnivore. There wasn't another option. And he said that if you follow these principles, if you're a person with some means that can own some land, you'll become a very wealthy person. That it was not just a road to food, but a road to wealth, because if you can produce food, you become wealthy. So there's nothing wrong with wealth in this guy's eyes, because wealthy people that think this way have the ability to affect more change throughout the world. Really, really interesting. Now, briefly, I want to talk to you about the zones. We talked about the layers. What is a zone? A zone is simple. It's complex and it's simple at the same time. But basically, just to understand it at its core, there's five main zones. Zone one is the closest one to your house. That's where your kitchen garden would be. If you're growing basil and tomatoes and peppers and potatoes and things like that, that should all be in zone one. Zone one is the place that you do the most. Zone two is going to start to be out into your edges, your your herbaceous layer, your shrub layer, where you're not there watering every single day. You're not involved with it every single day. Right? You don't go there every single day. You see it, but you don't go there. And as you move further out, you give less and less care. And zone five is a place where you don't touch anything. 
It's completely, totally wild. And even in a small half-acre backyard, you might have a little square patch that you never touch. It becomes a haven for different types of predatory insects that help protect what you have going on in your zones 1, 2, 3, etc. Right, so that's zones. I'm not going to go any deeper than that with it today. It actually can go quite deep in planning and thinking about solar exposures and where you're going to plan your zones and how your house is laid out. But that's an easy way to understand it. And it's the most important component of it, to understand that the things that you need to put the most individual care into, that you have those things as close as possible to your home so that you will take care of them. Don't put your little uh, kitchen garden way out in the back like people used to do because that means it will be easy to not go there every day and not take care of it. Okay, the next thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is livestock, just a little bit about that today. Livestock fits into this plan very, very well. Once you get your, your trees that will be the canopy and the, and the sub-tree layer and your bushes and shrubs uh, to a point where they can handle it, it's time to employ some workers that will work very, very cheap for you. Uh, the best workers that you're going to find are going to be ducks and chickens. And when you put those animals with some level of control, if it's required, and no control if you can do it, depending on your situation, into those environments, they will spend an ungodly amount of time doing work for you. They'll till the soil. They'll help compost things. And they'll eat pests. Bill Molson has said that if you have a slug problem, if you have too many slugs eating your garden, you do do not have a slug problem. You have a deficiency in ducks. If you have a sufficient quantity of ducks, there's no way on God's green earth that you're going to have a problem with slugs. He said if you have a fruit fly problem, you have a deficiency in chickens. You put a chicken into a, an environment, an orchard, and the fruit fly comes and he infects one of your fruits. And it's one fruit, and it's not that big a deal. The problem is the fruit eventually starts to rot from the little maggots inside it. It falls to the ground, and then out of the fruit comes a whole bunch more flies. Now you have a native population of fruit flies right in the middle of your orchard. After they do that once or twice, which only takes a few days, now you have a massive problem as your fruit is being invaded by fruit flies or whatever other type of fly is invading your fruit. But you put chickens there, and when the fruit falls, the chicken runs over and goes, hallelujah, right? Rotted fruit, yum, little tiny maggot things, yum, and eats it. It breaks the cycle, and all of a sudden you're not worrying about it anymore. So ducks uh, and and, and chickens are, are really great at pest control and creating compost. Geese are really good at doing some of your weeding, and they're really great at producing uh, waste matter, but they're not real good at controlling pests. But they're a very useful animal as well. Additionally to that, you can add rabbits. Rabbits are not a free-range crop. They have to be protected in a hutch. But even a small colony of rabbits can produce a tremendous amount of rabbit manure, which is one of the greatest composts that you can put on your plants and throughout your facility uh, that's available. They can also produce meat for you if you're inclined to use them in that fashion. And a relatively small amount of rabbits can produce a rabbit a week or a rabbit other week every other week. And you can feed them mostly from stuff you grow if you have a few acres or more. If you don't have a few acres or more, you're going to have to bring in feed for them, uh, more than just a little bit of supplemental. But it's still low cost, a uh, great way to produce meat and produce your own organic waste for composting. 
So now I want to transition a little bit, and I want to go into some things that after learning all this, and as I've studied Bill Mollison's writings and his lectures and Jeff Lawton's writings and lectures, I've learned some things that are completely counterintuitive to the way that we think about modern agriculture. Things that I believe that even my grandfather taught me in our little plot of land, our little garden, and we did a lot of things naturally, and we did a little bit of things chemically, but it was mostly natural. And, um, you know, he was proud of that. But he thought, like, the concept of, I'm going to build a mini farm. Everything's flat and straight, right? One of the first things I learned about permaculture is if you have slopes on your land, you're blessed. Slopes are a way to move water. And if you put in ditches on contours and plant series of trees and bush on contour, and on contour means you plant them not in a straight line, but you follow, like if you think of a contour map, a topographical map, if you look at the contour lines, they're almost never straight. They curve and they bend. And you plant your plantings along those contour lines. So if I get to a place and I measure the elevation of this exact spot at 400 feet, that I use some type of a tool to make sure that as I create a line that I'm going to plant on or put an irrigation ditch on or put a, a major irrigation system on like a swale, that it stays at 400 feet. It doesn't matter which way it bends or winds or twists back and forth. I stay on that contour line. And then all of a sudden, what we've always seen as a disadvantage, slopes become a major advantage because we can use it to move water around, to harvest water, and to store water. But what do we do with typical agriculture if there's any kind of a slope? We bring in bulldozers and we flatten it out, at least in the big plateaus and terraces. I learned not to do that. I learned to embrace the slope and see the slope as an advantage. Look for the slope when evaluating property. That doesn't mean you necessarily want a cliff. You can make that an advantage. But gentle slopes, even somewhat would have been considered severe slopings, absolutely awesome tools for building a permaculture system. I also learned not to compost everything, not the typical way. I'm big on composting. I put a video up for the uh, the MSB members on a three-part composting system. It makes a decent amount of compost. It doesn't make a huge amount of compost. I realize I don't need a huge amount of compost, that I'm wasting my time when I'm putting everything in a compost pile. I now take most of my waste, and I pull mulch up, and I throw one piece here and one piece there all throughout my system. I just spread the waste out and let nature do the composting. And I learned that when you put it in a compost pile, about 80% of the value of the material is given off as gas and goes away. And you're left with, that's why you get a huge amount of compost, you end up with a little bit left. Right? But if you go put it under the mulch, a lot of the things that normally are released as gases are actually forced into your soil and then usable by the plants. And it's much more efficient and a lot less work. So don't compost everything. Have your little pile of compost. Use it in spot plantings and spot fertilization. But it doesn't need to be built up into these huge massive piles that you're turning over with a shovel or a pitchfork. You need a small amount of compost and do most of your composting by spreading your waste out and letting nature do what comes naturally. I also learned that clay soil is my friend. Um, ever since I moved to Texas, I have seen clay soil as my enemy. Clay soil is gross to dig in. It's disgusting. When 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 you end up with uh, the winter time and the grass is dead and you walk in it, it's, it, it makes big clumps of mud on your feet that build up and get thicker with every step you take. Clay soil is evil. No, clay soil is wonderful. It, it holds in moisture so much better than sandy soil. If you treat clay soil the right way, it's the greatest advantage you can have as a gardener. 
that goes to the next thing we have to learn. Don't till your soil. Don't dig your soil any more than you need to get something into it and plant it. Leave it alone. Mulch it. If you mulch the hell out of your soil, I don't care what it is, it could be clay or sand, nature takes over from there. Now, you may have to get some of your plantings going in very sandy soil, do some soil amendments and put some things in there that help with the initial water retention. But if you start piling mulch on a foot thick, eventually it will become soil. And whatever you're, you're dealing with will become better. And things will begin to permeate down. And little soil creatures and fungi will come and do all the work for you. And you'll have a million, billion worms in your ground tilling your soil constantly for you. Leave it alone. I've learned that when you till your soil, you destroy the stratification effect of pH and chemicals and um, components and nutrients. That soil left to itself won't be a pH of 7.1. Eventually, the pH will stratify. And you'll have an acid-loving plant like a blueberry growing next to a pepper. And they'll grow in the same place. And neither one of them will have any problems. And conventional knowledge will tell you that can't be. The blueberry needs a much more acidic pH than the pepper. They can survive in the same place, but they can't thrive. You stop tilling the soil, the plant has innate intelligence. It will send the root layer down to the area that it prefers, and it will grow its lateral roots at that layer if you leave it alone and if you get the soil tilled by microorganisms so that it's opened up. If you go in and you plant other plants first, they go in and break the soil up. Plants with long tap roots, plants with strong lateral roots, weeds. Because that's the next thing I learned. Plant weeds. Weeds will heal your soil. Plant weeds and then kill them. Plant weeds and let them die. Let them die and leave the root in the ground. It will form pathways. Bill Mollison calls the roots that are left behind fast carbon pathways. In other words, when I plant something and kill it, and the roots are left underground, they form channels, and the next thing that I plant can use that channel and grow into that space and further break up that soil. And simply by planting the right things, mulching and encouraging biological activity, my soil will become rich and deep and loamy, and I don't have to do a damn bit of work to make it happen. I just have to put the right system into place. It might take a little longer, but I end up with a system that's completely sustainable. The next one is don't be tidy. We, we have this mentality of, and anybody that's ever flown in an airplane over agricultural land sees circles and squares and patterns and rows and everything's in perfect order. And when you see a nice house that's been manicured in its garden, it might even be beautiful, but it's all tidy. Permaculture landscapes are not tidy. They're beautiful. They're patterned. But they're patterned after nature, not after man. Straight lines are avoided. Taking two plants and purposely keeping them away from each other is avoided unless they're known to have a negative effect on each other. Things are intergrown, interplanted. Flowers grown right on top of vegetables. Beans growing up the side of fruit trees. Lamb's quarters that are seen as weeds growing in between rows of trees. Being harvested in many ways, shapes, and forms. That's what permaculture is all about. You ass clown. I told you guys I'd give you one more. What a jackass. Oh. 
What a jerk. He couldn't stand to have me exit the freaking tollway in front of him. I'm behind you now, jerk. You're lucky I'm a level-headed guy or I'd go after this guy. Here's one more for you guys that don't like auto rants and for those that, or for you guys that like auto rants and for those of you that don't like them, don't worry. I won't be in the car primarily, uh, much longer. I'll still jump in it once in a while for you guys that like it. Oh. And he drives what? A Prius, folks! He drives a Prius. Anyway, back to the thing. But that's what permaculture does for you. That's exactly what permaculture does for you. It does the work for you if you allow nature's patterns to happen. So don't be tidy. Let things overgrow. Let things grow in amongst themselves. If something gets too big, cut it back. And when you cut it back, don't haul it away. Drop it right on the ground. One of the principles of permaculture is chop and drop. You grow a tree, a fast-growing nitrogen-fixing tree. It grows up to about six feet tall. You go with a pair of pruners. You cut it off at about four feet tall. You throw the branches on the ground. You leave them the hell alone. Pretty soon, fungus... And insects take care of the things. They take their natural course. The wood rocks into the ground, feeds the ground, takes the natural nutrients that were pulled up from deep and puts them on the surface layer so they can be used by other things. So kill some plants. But when you kill them, leave them where they're at. That's what happens in nature. No one comes and takes them away. That's why the middle of the forest has that beautiful, deep, black, loamy soil. The next one I learned was, and I already knew this to a degree, but not at the level that I know now, attract insects. Insects were always the enemy. Let's keep them away. I mean, some butterflies coming around once in a while are kind of cool, but, you know, insects are terrible. I learned that if I created insect habitat, specifically predatory insect habitat and pollinating insect habitat that a lot of my pest insects would get taken care of. I learned that if I attracted things like ladybugs and lacewings to my garden, I didn't have to worry about my pests becoming immune. See, because you don't become immune if you are a pest insect to a lacewing because a lacewing eats you and you don't become immune to being consumed. So to attract insects. And that's why we have a zone 5. We have a place that we leave it alone. We let it be what it is. We let it be a little natural preserve. Even if it's a 50 foot by 50 foot square. Or in a small backyard, maybe it's a 10 foot by 10 foot square. Maybe it's a 5 foot by 5 foot square. Don't think that doesn't matter. It matters. It creates natural flora and fauna. It gives the creatures that live in your area, that need that native environment, a native environment to live in. And when you put all of this together, you get a system that will feed you for generation upon generation upon generation. And with a lot of land, you can turn it into a business. And with a little bit of land, you can feed a family. And with a moderate amount of land, you can feed a community at least a major portion of what they need to survive. And you can create a system that doesn't require chemicals and genetically modified foods and, and, and all the other things that we've put into our, our systems of agriculture today out of not a, not a malice, but a belief that it's necessary. There's 6 billion people in this world, 6.7 billion people, I think, now. We've got to feed them. How the hell are we going to feed them? This is the way. This is why guys like Mullison and Lawton are so passionate about what they do. It's why they travel the world spreading it, because they know that it works, because they've done it everywhere. They have students that have done it in the northwest United States, where it gets bitterly cold. And I saw a guy in the mountains of Washington who's growing lemons. 
in the mountains of Washington because he's created a rock outcrop on the sunny side of the hill, on the south side of the hill, where the rocks retain the sun's heat. And he bought the lemons that would have the they have the most amount of cold tolerance. And even where he gets snow, he's growing lemons. And he's created an, an entire ecosystem where this is happening in the northwest United States. And I've seen Bill Mollison's students in the, the hottest, most barren parts of Africa building similar systems. And I've listened to people that could barely speak English describe the seven-layer system that I just described to you. That's how powerful this is. And that's why mainstream media doesn't touch it. Have you ever noticed you've never heard of permaculture on the nightly news, even though it's this amazing and this fascinating, and people have done it all over the world? And Would it be a major news story that a guy was growing lemons in northern Washington? No, because the establishment fears it, because it puts the power back in the hands of the people. It is the ability to transform our society back to some level of an agrarian society. Because it goes bigger than this. There's ways to heat your home with it. There's ways to provide your own energy with it. There's even ways to produce gas with it if it's taken far enough. If we would invest in it and take these brilliant people and give them something to work with, other than giving them nothing to work with, except some land where they can scrape it up, we could go even further. There's, there's open technologies being shared by people that are doing this. Nobody hides a secret method with permaculture. Nobody's like, oh, I, I figured out the secret way to do this, and I'm not going to tell anybody because it's a, you know, I'll, I'll sell licenses to it or something. Permaculture is completely the antithesis of that. All knowledge that one permaculturist has, he'll willingly give free to another. Because he wants to see it happen everywhere. And, you know, folks, you can think I've gone off a little bit on conspiracy theories here, but it's not a conspiracy theory. Our government and our biggest corporations do not want the individual capable of caring for and feeding and protecting himself. Those are the three things that government and corporations seek to control because there's the most money in it. If I can control your health care... If I can control your food service, and if I can control your need to have defense, I have you as my slave. I control everything. Well, permaculture won't defend you, but it will feed you. And to a large degree, if you learn a little bit about medicinal plants and eating right and taking care of yourself, it will really negate the need for conventional health care. They won't get rid of it altogether. We still need modern medicine. I'm not modern medicine's enemy. But it will reduce how much is necessary. People will live longer and healthier. If you, don't, if you doubt that, take a trip to Nepal and check out the 80 and 90 year old men and women that walk up mountains every day for something to do. And don't, they don't even know what osteoporosis is. If you try to describe it to them, they think it's some horrific, weird disease. They don't even get it. They don't know what it is. That's what permaculture can do. It can can create this environment. And it's not anti-technology or it's in conjunction with technology. I guarantee you, you come up with some really advanced piece of of computer technology that will make a permaculturist's life easier. He'll grab it, use it, stick it right in there. It's complete diversity. It's completely the antithesis of excluding anything. People say, oh, that plant's invasive. And a permaculturist says, if that plant produces nitrogen or food and benefits the system, please invade. I'll help you invade. That's the concept of this permaculture. And that's why it scares the establishment. That's why you don't hear about it. So 
How do you change that? Do it. Like everything else we talk about. The way you affect change is by doing it. Not just talking about it. Taking action and making it happen. Build something of your own like that. Go start out with one little plot of grass. Throw some cardboard down and mulch on it right now. Get it ready for next year to plant it. Kill something. That's the secret to creating life. It's the first terminate life. Now, that sounds crazy, but it's the way it works in nature. If we're going to have a new tree grow, an old tree must die. If you're going to grow something edible on a sterile land, then some portion of that useless Bermuda grass or Raleigh St. Augustine grass in your backyard must die to make room for it. Figure out where that spot is. Go kill something today. And with that, I'm going to wrap up. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.